Ready. Hello, class. This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And all information I have is from public information. Okay, today we are actually going to do a, I think the word is reboot or remaster. I was listening to my second episode, which I did back in February, and it is so horrible. So many noises, and it's, well, I was brand new then, literally, and um, I was mortified at the sound quality of it, so I decided to do it over, and hopefully Yins can understand it better and like it. So, with no further ado, survey question. What's your favorite day of the week? Friday, or Friday, as people say, which I hate. It sounds like baby talk and makes me want to scream. What's your least favorite day? I bet if I took a survey, a lot of people would say Monday. Am I right? Well, today's lesson is about somebody who took a dislike of Mondays to a whole different level. Brenda Ann Spencer was born on April 3rd, 1962 in San Carlos, California, a working-class suburb of San Diego. She had an older brother, Scott, and older sister, Teresa. Her parents were Wallace, known as Wally, and Dot, and they were not very happy together. They got divorced when Brenda was nine, and Wally got custody of all three kids. Their mother remarried, and sources say that she started a new life and pretty much ignored her older three kids. Brenda's sister went to college and her brother moved out, meaning Brenda was alone in their Lake Atland Avenue house with their dad, Wally. And believe me, this dude was not going to win any Father of the Year awards. Pretty much everybody says that Brenda was happy, you know, like a normal kid until her parents divorced. And then all of a sudden she became sullen and depressed. When she was about six, she had an accident where she fell off her bike and hit her head. Now, for you youngsters, I know it's hard to believe, but back in the 70s, we actually rode bikes without helmets. It, I know it's crazy, isn't it? I did that, and I'm actually alive to tell about it. Just keep this in the back of your mind because this will be significant later on. Now, Brenda's dad, Wally, who worked as an audio-visual tech at San Diego University, was described by the neighbors as an antisocial loner. He was also said to be a hunting enthusiast who, quote, had enough guns and ammo for a small army, end quote. When she was younger, Brenda was said to be interested in animals and photography, and she even won a photography contest. She said that when she grew up, she wanted to be either a vet or, or a photographer. Now, I've read where... Brenda and her dad both slept on a mattress in the living room. Ew. But I've also read that when she was arrested, the police found three furnished bedrooms. So I'm not quite sure what the situation was there. Many years later, when she was in prison, spoiler alert, she goes to prison, 
Brenda would say that her dad started sexually abusing her, starting with, quote, fondling her when she was nine. And remember, that's when her mom left. And then he graduated to actually penetrating her, she said, almost every night. There's a documentary about this case, and it's pretty good. It's on YouTube. I can't put clips of it on because it's not mine, but I will put the link in the show notes for you in case you want to watch it. It's, It's very interesting. In it, they interview her mom, and they say something to the effect of, Um, Brenda accuses her dad of sexually abusing her. What are your thoughts on that? And the mother says, quote, well, you know, I always suspected they had an unhealthy relationship, end quote. So it's like, hmm. And a fair question. The reporter then asked her, well, did you ever try to get custody of her? And she says, Well, you know, back then, I really couldn't afford an attorney to fight for custody of her. Okay, well, uh, you sound like a great parent, too. Her classmates described Brenda as, quote, a very weird girl with long, scraggly red hair and kind of crummy looking, end quote. And I have pictures of her on my social media so you can see what she looked like when she was 16, and what she looks like now and somewhere in the middle when she has a mullet. She apparently got in trouble a lot in school for being truant and not doing her work. And the kids said that she would just sit there looking dazed and teachers would actually ask her if she was awake. Ominously, she was, quote, always talking about guns. Now, Brenda's trouble with the law began when she was about 14 or 15, when she started hanging around with a younger boy named Brent, who was three years younger. Interestingly, Brent's stepdad was a San Diego cop, which supposedly caused him to have problems with authority, which then rubbed off on Brenda. The two of them liked to watch police shows on TV like SWAT, which I had never heard of, and make comments, I guess, when they'd see something cool, like, I don't know, bombs or something. And to be fair, I think it may have been common for teenagers in the 70s to have problems with authority. I know I wasn't around, but in the 60s, they had, like, counterculture and hippies, and they said stuff like, we hate, we hate pigs and so forth. And my mom said that, that at that time, That's pretty much what it was like, like down with authority and uh, stuff like that. So I guess this attitude carried on into the 70s. So I'm thinking it might not have been too odd or out of the ordinary for a teenager in that time to have a bad attitude towards police and authority. So together, Brenda and Brent shot up the elementary school across the street You heard me right, elementary school across the street, with BB guns, and for some reason broke into it, making her first arrest and her first encounter with the juvenile justice system. She was placed on probation for burglary. Now, why they broke into the school, I have no idea. Probably to vandalize it, if I had to guess. And now I have to give you a quick lesson on legal terminology. Burglary is defined, at least here in Pennsylvania, as being somewhere you're not supposed to be with the intention of committing a crime. Robbery is defined as the unlawful taking, 
either by force or threat of force, of something from another person. So you burglarize a place and you rob a person. Please don't do either, but I'm just saying. And I see so many people get these terms mixed up, even people that are in law enforcement, and it really gets on my nerves. So Brenda was on juvenile probation. Now, you know, I was a probation officer, but I was an adult probation officer, not a juvenile one. Juvenile probation is an entirely different world. Their caseloads are relatively small compared to what I had, and their main focus is to try to steer kids down the right path. So it's more of like helping and counseling rather than what I did, which is, I call it adult babysitting. And yes, I sound cynical, but once they got to me, they were already bad and they didn't listen to me anyway. And my defendants used to say to me, you're supposed to care about me. Your job is to help me. And I would say, my job is to supervise you. If I cared about people, I would have been a nurse. Now, Brenda's PO said that she might have had some mental health problems, so he ordered her to have a psychiatric evaluation. And the psychiatrist reported that she was depressed and had attempted suicide on occasion and recommended that she be hospitalized. Now, her asshole father, however, refused. He reportedly said to the probation officer, She's fine. Leave us alone. Can you believe that? So by this time, 1978, she was in an alternative school for kids with problems. Supposedly, she was placed there because of her behavior problems at school. Now, really, Wally, your daughter is depressed and has attempted suicide. Big red flags, but you don't want her to get the treatment she needs. I may be going out on a limb saying this, and feel free to disagree with me, but I believe her father should take some of the moral, if not the legal, responsibility for what she went on to do. Later on, years later in prison, Brenda said that she actually had attempted suicide on several occasions, usually by overdosing on various substances, but that she always just woke up more depressed. In prison, she was diagnosed with epilepsy, depression, and schizophrenia. It's not really clear if it was known that she had epilepsy earlier in her life or not. She was later put on medication for all of these illnesses. She also reportedly suffered from PMS, you know, premenstrual syndrome. And don't laugh. This can be debilitating. And she had extremely painful cramps. For Christmas of 1978, Brenda asked her dad for a radio you know, so she could hear groovy 70 tunes from bands like the Bee Gees, etc. Supposedly, Alice Cooper was her favorite. Don't laugh, but I like the Bee Gees. So what does her piece of shit father get her? A gun! An ammo! A Ruger twenty two semi-automatic rifle with 500 rounds of ammo with a scope on it. All together now. What the fuck? What kind of dad gets his depressed child a rifle with a scope and a shit ton of ammunition? See what I mean about moral accountability? Remember that documentary I mentioned where they interviewed Brenda's mother, Dot? In it, she makes the very insightful comment, quote, 
I feel that her father should be where she is and not her, end quote. Meaning, of course, in prison. People, if you're going to have kids, don't do shit like this. Be nice to them. That's how we end up with mass murderers and serial killers. Now, today I have a hunch that it may be different if, if such a thing had happened. I've heard stories like a kid gets a hold of a gun, shoots somebody or something, and the parents are held legally accountable for leaving the guns where the kids can get into them. So that's another lesson. If you have guns, keep them locked up or safe, or at least not laying around. Now, I mentioned earlier that Brenda and her dad lived across from Grover Cleveland Elementary School, which had about 300 kids and 13 teachers. So I guess, well, I, I compare that to the elementary school I went to, I guess that would be about average. Every morning at about 8.30, Principal Barton Rag would open up the big gates of the schoolyard and let all the kids inside. At the end of January 1979, one of Brenda's friends, apparently she did have friends, would later tell the police that Brenda had confided that she was, quote, planning to do something that would get her on TV on Monday, end quote. So Monday, January 29th rolls around. Brenda, who was now 16, had been off of school all over the previous week, and she supposedly asked her dad if she could stay home that day because she had cramps. To which, of course, Wally, being the good father that he was, said, of course, dear. At about 8.30 that morning, the kids were gathered at the gate of the elementary school when they started hearing pops like firecrackers. Brenda, for reasons known only to her, had aimed her new Christmas rifle out of her window and was shooting at the kids. At the time, Charles Miller, who is known as Cam, he was nine then, said his mother had just dropped him off at the school when he saw the principal and custodian laying in the parking lot by some bushes. He felt a sharp pain and said he blacked out for a moment, and then a girl helped him towards the school building. He and the other wounded kids were herded into the cafeteria to await medical attention. He said, quote, I lay in the cafeteria. It seemed like forever, end quote. He thinks of, he may have been targeted because he was wearing a blue down vest. Brenda later told police that she liked to shoot the people wearing down because she liked to see the feathers fly, and that she was also kind of aiming for blue, which was her favorite color. Cam, who grew up to be a San Diego County probation officer, which, of course, is an awesome career choice, later said that getting shot in the chest had changed his life. He spoke of losing his sense of security and well-being, seeing his principal and custodian gunned down, then feeling himself being shot and his body going numb. He said, quote, it's very vivid in my mind. It's not really hatred for Brenda, but she should remain imprisoned for life, end quote. Mary Clark, who was also nine at the time, was shot in the lower torso, but she didn't realize it immediately. Now, I've never been shot, but I have heard people say similar things, like they're shot or stabbed or something and don't feel it right away because I guess like they have too much adrenaline running through them. She later said that she was rushed into the cafeteria and said, quote, I remember that fear. You don't know what's going on. 
We didn't understand why she was shooting at us, end quote. Her mother found the bullet hole in her side and took her to the hospital. And she went on to have nightmares and fortunately got therapy. Mary said, quote, whenever I hear of school shootings, I'm bothered because I know what those children are facing. I stopped following Brenda's parole hearings 25 years ago. I realized that she'll never have a realistic answer of why she did it, end quote. Just for a minute, imagine all of these, those poor kids and teachers. They probably all have PTSD now. They're in elementary school, so they're little kids. And all you know is you're standing there in the schoolyard and you hear what you think is firecrackers. And it takes you a couple minutes to dawn on you that somebody's shooting at you. And they're probably like, what is going on? Who is shooting at us and why? That has to be terrifying. Now, obviously, somebody had called the police by this time, and the call went out over the police radio car as, quote, gunfire, kid shot, and officer wounded at the elementary school, end quote. The officer mentioned was Robert Robb, who was shot in the neck as he was huddled behind a tree with other officers. Fortunately, he survived and was later awarded a Medal of Valor. At one point, the principal, Burton Rag, who was 53, realized what was going on and came running out of the school. He and the custodian, 56-year-old Mike Sushar, both threw themselves into the line of fire to, to protect the kids. Sadly, Mr. Sushar was pronounced dead at El Verado Hospital, and the principal would later die in surgery. Now, a little bit of information about these two gentlemen. There's not a whole lot available. Burton Rag was born in 1925 in Inglewood, California, and had been married to Kathy for 25 years. He had two boys and a girl. He liked to garden and camp, and he had chickens. Mike Sushar, who was said to be a favorite of the kids, they called him Mr. Mike, was born in Ohio and had served in the Seabees in the Navy during World War II. Some of the other kids injured that day were Christy Buell, also nine, who was shot in the abdomen and lower back. She was in the hospital for a month and spent 18 months recovering. She said, quote, I'll just never get over it. Monica Selving was shot in the stomach. Her dad would later say, quote, a child has the right to grow up feeling that they're out of harm's way. They have a right to a childlike aura of invincibility. Brenda Spencer took that away from Monica forever, end quote. And that's a good point. A kid, well, anybody really, but especially kids, should not have to worry about shit like going outside and getting shot. Julie Robles was shot in the side. Her doctor said it was a miracle that the bullet missed any vital organs and only left her with a minor injury. She said later that she thinks about Brenda from time to time, wondering if she's safely locked up. Now, when Officer Ted Kazanak got to the school, he knew that the shots were coming from a house across the street. So what he did, he commandeered a garbage truck that was nearby and drove it into the school parking lot and parked it to serve as like a shield between the kids and the Spencer house. He later said that right away a volley of shots started and then it stopped. Like she realized, oh shit, you know, my shots have been blocked. He hid behind the truck just as the SWAT team was coming. 
And this is a little bit ironic because it was said that SWAT was one of Brenda's favorite shows, remember? There were said to be a hundred uniformed cops and a 20-man SWAT team on the scene. By this time, the police had obviously figured out where the shooting was coming from, but they didn't know exactly who was doing it or why. So a local reporter found the phone number to the Spencer house. I don't really understand how. Somehow he must have found a bunch of phone numbers listed by the houses that were on this street, and he just called them at random, figuring he would get one of Brenda's neighbors, and he would ask something like, do you have any idea where the shots are coming from, or who's shooting, or looking for some kind of quote, you know, to put in his newspaper. But little did he know that he happened upon Brenda herself. Brenda answered the phone, and the reporter asked if she knew where the shots were coming from. And she said, yeah, who do you think's doing the shooting? And the reporter goes, well, why are you shooting? And Brenda goes with her famous quote, because I don't like Mondays. It livens up the day. Then she said, I have to go. I just shot a pig, I think, and I want to shoot some more. In case you don't know, pig is like 60s and 70s slang for a police officer. When she talks about shooting a cop, she Fortunately, only shot one, and that would be, of course, Officer Rob, who fortunately survived. But she just threw that line off about Mondays, and it would become the theme of this crime. We'll talk more about, about that later. Obviously, by this time, the police had also figured out that Brenda was the shooter. She barricaded herself in the house and refused to come up. As I mentioned previously, the SWAT team was there. They had the house surrounded. They had a couple snipers in place with their rifles aimed. And they had what they call the green light. It means they're allowed to shoot and kill Brenda if the uh, chance arose. Now, there was, there was a hostage negotiator who called Brenda's dad to come and talk to her. Like, try to talk her into surrendering or try to talk some sense into her or something. And this part is quite disturbing. They also called her mother at work. And Dot goes, I'm busy. I can't leave. Can you believe this? Excuse me, ma'am. Your child is shooting up a school. Can you please come and do something? No, I'm busy. Really? So Brenda's standoff with the police would last about seven hours. By this time, the kids had all been evacuated out of the school and had been taken to hospitals. The total injured was eight kids, Officer Rob, and two dead, who was Principal Rag and Mr. Mike. Brenda was found to have fired about 30 times. She had originally said that she was going to come out shooting and told the hostage negotiator, Paul Olson, that, quote, it was a lot of fun seeing children shot and that she liked to watch the kids squirm around after they had been shot. Paul Olson, who's now in his 70s, still has his notes from that incident, and he noted that Brenda said that the kids look like a herd of cows when they gather around the wounded, making them easy pickings. Brenda finally surrendered at about 2.30 when the police promised her a whopper from the Burger King, Personally, I would have held out for Taco Bell. That's just me. 
She came out of the house, laid her rifle on the ground, and was immediately handcuffed. The police said that when they searched the house, they found that it was a pigsty. There were tons of empty beer cans and whiskey bottles all over the living room, where it looked like Brenda had been, like, camping out on the gross, dirty mattress, where we don't really know if her dad slept also or not. Brenda was then taken to the homicide unit where she was questioned. Now, this is another thing that we're not quite sure about. At the time, she claimed to be drunk and high on PCP. And I PCP, if you don't know what it is, I, I think it was common in the 70s. No, I've never done it. I think they called it angel dust. It was kind of like LSD, a hallucinogenic, a bad drug. Not that any drugs are good, but this one was particularly bad. She claimed to be on these substances, but they took blood from her when they arrested her. And the toxicology reports came back saying that there was nothing in her system. She would later argue about that, which we'll address later. In October of 1979, she was charged as an adult. She pled guilty to two counts of murder and assault with a deadly weapon. And she was sentenced to 25 years to life. She's currently in California Institution for Women in Chino, California. She has had four parole hearings and has been denied all four times. Remember how at the beginning of the episode I said that she fell off her bike and hit her head when she was around six? Well, when she was in prison, she was given x-rays of her skull and was found to have damage to the temporal lobe of her brain. This will be important because her psychologist, Dr. Fast, reported that she also had temporal lobe epilepsy, which he said was two to four times more common in violent people than in nonviolent people. In fact, one of her prison psychologists theorized that while she was having her shooting spree, that she was actually having a temporal lobe seizure which can cause moodiness, dysthymia, and depression. Dysthymia, by the way, is um, like a mild form of depression. It kind of just means like bad mood or pissy. Is that a word? Well, I just made it a word. The temporal lobe of your brain is responsible for consciousness, hearing, and vision. In 1993, Brenda was interviewed by CBS News. And I do have a clip of that that I would like to play for you. The interview takes place outside. You can hear some, like, birds and there's, like, car horns or something else. But anyway, here's Brenda in 1993. We met in a visiting area at the Frontera Women's Prison in Corona. A small woman, Brenda Spencer strikes you as quiet, reserved, polite, and intelligent. She told me that on that Monday morning in 1979, she was hallucinating after a week of drinking whiskey and taking the powerful drug PCP, a drug she says she bought at school. What does she remember about that morning? Do you remember the gun? Mm-hmm. I remember the, the rifle because I had gotten that a month previous. As a Christmas present? Yeah, it was for Christmas. From your father? Mm-hmm. You remember loading the gun? Remember pointing the gun? Mm-hmm. I remember looking out and, and seeing, like, commando types sneaking up on the house and stuff. And I don't remember actually going in and getting the rifle and loading it up, but I remember seeing them and being real scared and terrified. 
you know, they're coming to get me, and I have to protect myself and stuff. And I know somewhere in there I did go and get the, the rifle. So the whole thing to you, 13 years later, is just this drugged-out haze, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really broken up and fragmented. It's uh, I, I can't sit there and, and tell you, well, at this time I did this, and at this time. You know, it's just little bits and pieces that have come back over the years. Um, like the week prior, that one, I, I don't really have any memories from that week ahead of the incident. And the week after, I was asleep. I was coming down off the, the street drugs, and even that week, I don't really have a whole lot of memories of it. It's like I slept a lot, and I was going through withdrawals and things. Brenda Spencer told me what she did that day was not first-degree murder, which takes planning, but the lesser crime of manslaughter. I don't sit here and, and plan on how to go out and kill people and stuff like that. That's that's um, just not that's not how I am or who I am, and uh, how it was presented, and uh, it made me look like that. There were allegations that mm -hmm. Brenda Spencer got the rifle, loaded it, mm -hmm. planned all of this and shot those people. Yeah, and they made it look like, you know, just for the fun of it and stuff, which is totally senseless. There's, uh, I, every day I live with, you know, the knowledge that I, I took the lives of two men, and that's real difficult. She said that she, quote, had to grow up and deal with problems from the past, end quote. And now, meaning now that she was in prison, was when she finally admitted to the sexual abuse from her dad, which Wally always denied. And here's how gross this man is. He married Brenda's, um, I guess you would call it a Sally cellmate from when she was in juvenile hall. This girl, his new wife, was 17 and they had a daughter together. Their marriage didn't last, imagine that. And even creepier, if you can get any creepier than that, was that this girl supposedly looked just like Brenda. Ugh. Her dad died in 2016. During this interview, the one that I just played for you, Brenda told the reporter that now she was off of drugs and she wanted to have a normal life. She said, quote, I don't really know what it's like out there dealing with the world as an adult, end quote. And she said if she was ever paroled, she would like to have a career maybe with kids in a program or something. She still claims that she was on PCP and alcohol at the time of her crime. She claims that her, I guess, attorneys have independent evidence of this, like they took her to another lab or something to get a blood test, and that this test shows these substances. And these tests, for whatever reason, were not admitted in court. I don't know. This is just what she says. In fact, this is kind of weird. She claims that she had a lethal amount of drugs in her system. Now, if somebody has a lethal amount of drugs in their system, you'd think that you will be able to tell when you arrest them. And remember, they took her to the uh, police department and questioned her. And if she had a lethal amount of something in her um she would either die or have convulsions or do something, you would think. 
And she said, quote, if I had no drugs and alcohol in my system, then I'm just a cold-blooded killer, and that's not how I am, end quote. She says that she has a very fragmented memory of the whole day, meaning the day of, of the crime. And mostly what she remembers is what she read in the police report. At one of her parole hearings, she said, quote, with every school shooting, I feel I'm partially responsible. What if they got the idea from what I did? End quote. San Diego County District Attorney Richard Sachs said, quote, she hurt so many people and had so much to do with starting a deadly trend in America, end quote. He believes that she's still dangerous. One of her parole hearings was attended by Haley Ragg, who's the granddaughter of Burton Ragg, the uh, principal. And she told reporters that she had feared Brenda's release since she was a child. She said, quote, I know there was a lot of turmoil in the family every time Brenda was up for parole. I was so young, I didn't understand it. I felt really scared, like she'd come after me. I felt like letting this person out of her cage would harm my family members even more. My grandfather and the janitor threw themselves at the kids that were being shot at to save their lives, and in the process lost their own. I may not have grown up with a grandpa, but many children grew up to have their own families, end quote. One of the shooting victims, now an adult, told the newspaper that he was awarded his school's Teacher of the Year Award in San Diego in 2007. His name is Chris Stanley, and he said that it was the heroic teachers on that day that saved his life that inspired him to become a teacher himself, which I think is a really cool story. Coincidentally, in 1993, almost exactly 10 years after Brenda's shooting, another school shooting took place at another school called Grover Cleveland Elementary School. This one was in Stockton, California. In this one, unfortunately, five kids were killed. And this shooting, according to news clips, triggered memories of Brenda's shooting, and it, like, freaked people out in the area because I guess it happened not too far from where Brenda's shooting happened and not that long after. So Brenda is uh, pretty much considered to be like the first school shooter or first mass shooter at a school. After her latest parole hearing, her prosecutor said that she presents remorse but comes across as fragile, somebody who's not all together. She says she does remember the crime, but she provides no insight into what happened. Now, she did provide some insight when she told prison officials that she felt unwanted and envied kids who had someone to protect them. She also stated that if she shot at a school, she thought that the police would come running and shoot her and kill her which we call suicide by cop. I can kind of see that line of reasoning. I'm not defending her. I'm just trying to get into her mind and see what she could have possibly been thinking. We already know she had a shitty life, so she was most likely abused, and she tried to kill herself at least a couple occasions. So she's quite miserable. She lives across from an elementary school, where every day she sees happy little kids playing in the schoolyard. And I can imagine her watching them, thinking, oh, I wish I was one of those kids. 
I wish I was out there swinging and running around playing and had friends and I had parents who loved me and cared for me. You know, I could see where she would be envious of these kids for, in her mind, having something that she never did, which was a loving family. In 2015, she wrote a letter to her former attorney, Michael McGlynn, thanking him for his help. And Mr. McGlynn said that he thought that she didn't know what she was doing at the time of the shooting and was no longer a threat to society. In the letter, she said, quote, what I did was horrible. I don't really complain about all the time I've done, end quote. So we've seen two opposite ends of the spectrum. The DA, of course, because that's kind of their job, thinks she's still dangerous and belongs in prison still. And her former attorney thinks that she's done her time, she's remorseful, and she should be released. Her next parole hearing is actually this year, September of 2021. And a lot of people seem to think that she may get lucky this year and be released. She's now 58 years old, and she's been in prison since 1979. So she's literally spent her whole life in prison. Just in case you're curious as to what happened to the Grover Cleveland Elementary School, it was closed in 1983 due to declining enrollment. On the grounds, they have a plaque with the names of the victims of the 1979 shooting. Now, remember I said earlier about Brenda's quote, I don't like Mondays. And that actually became a song. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I never had until I started doing this research. I listened to it. I don't care for it. But it's called I Don't Like Mondays. And it was written by Irish mu musician Bob Geldof and performed by the Boomtown Rats. And yes, it is based on this incident. It never mentions the name Brenda in the song, but it does say she and her, and it's kind of disturbing. It, it has lines like she this and something about shooting, and obviously I can't play it for you because I don't have the rights to it, but feel free to look it up if you're curious and, you know, listen to it. Bob Geldof told the UK Daily Mail, quote, she wrote to me, saying she was glad she'd done it because I made her famous, which is not a good thing to live with. Not liking Mondays as a reason for doing somebody in is a bit strange. It was the perfect senseless act, and this was the perfect perfect, senseless reason for doing it, end quote. He wrote the song about a month after the shooting, which would have been like February 1979, and the song was number one in the UK and like 30 some other countries. There is a video of it. And in the video, the band is performing the song to a classroom filled with little kids, um, which I do find disturbing. Oddly enough, in pop culture, this also comes up somewhere else. If you've ever seen the movie The Breakfast Club, it's a real popular 80s movie. It's about teenagers doing detention on a Saturday morning. And I did see it back in the 80s, which was a long time ago. And of course, I didn't notice this. But apparently, on one of the walls in the movie, quote, I don't like Mondays is written in graffiti is, a, I guess, a tribute to Brenda. To be honest, I don't think... 
that, that that was really the reason, you know, that she didn't like Mondays. Brenda herself that said that she doesn't actually remember saying that. I have a feeling that she doesn't really remember a whole lot about that day or, or she remembers like snippets or maybe she even has like a selective memory. But I think it was just a flippant off-the-cuff remark made when the reporter asked her why she was doing this. I don't think that Mondays had any bearing on her reasoning. She was uh, disturbed. So what did we learn today? This is important. If anybody you know, especially like a kid, a friend, anybody talks about suicide, take them seriously. Tell somebody. This isn't usually something that people joke about. If you have a kid or a friend or somebody you know who's depressed, for fuck's sake, don't buy them a gun or any other weapon. That should be common sense. You shouldn't have to tell people that. But unfortunately, somebody should have told Wally Spencer that. This episode is dedicated to Barton Rag and Mike Sushore and all of the people wounded by Brenda Spencer in 1979. Class dismissed.